0: Hey everyone, welcome to the 37signals podcast. This is Matt Linderman. Today we're going to be doing Q&A with Jason and David based on reader questions that you guys posted at Signal versus Noise. So let's get started. Alright, so Joe asks, are there negotiation insights to learn from how David became a partner at 37signals? Was Ruby on Rails David's leverage to become a partner versus employee?
1: Uh, I think it was pure awesomeness that I actually uh, tipped that <laughs> scale over. <laughs> no, I think that uh, yeah, actually, may- maybe you should answer that, Jason. What? Uh, yeah. What um, yeah. I mean, me Rails obviously
2: had a lot to do with it, but it was you know, David and I've been working together for at that point, I don't know what five years, something like that. Um, is that right? About two thousand two uh, thousand one,
1: three or four. Okay. Four. No, actually, you're right. Five years. Yeah. yeah, it was 2000 when we started working together.
2: So you know, we we built a great working relationship. We we see things in very similar ways, and we get along. We have the same outlook on a variety of things. So it was a combination of things. I mean, Rails certainly was a, was a big part of it too, um, but it was a variety of, of of things that I think all came together um, at the right time to make that happen.
1: I think the other thing that sort of matters in general when you're trying to pick a business partner or whatever is that uh, it can't just be about the. Um, craft like if all I was interested in doing was programming then I don't think I would have been a good fit for for a business partner if you want to be a partner in a business you have to be willing to wear many more hats than just that of your craft you have to uh, dive into all sorts of issues of personnel building a company finance um, the marketing aspects of it Uh, there's so many other things than just the the technical aspect of it
2: I also think it's important to make sure that you've worked with this person for a while. I, I get emails occasionally from people starting businesses looking for business partners, and they're like, hey, I just met this guy who's a who's a programmer. Should we, you know, go fifty-fifty on something? And, and I, I think you really, it's it's kind of like a marriage. You have to date for a while, really, and and you got to work with somebody and get to know them because it is kind of like a marriage, and you got to make sure you can get along and, and you can stand someone for a long period of time and all those things. So, uh, I, I think it's important to to work with somebody first before you. You you link up in, in legal terms because a business is a, is a legal entity and and it's it, it can be messy if things don't work out.
1: I've seen it not work out a couple of times for people and it's incredibly painful. Once you've split things up into to equity and somebody owns a part of your company, it is incredibly painful to divorce yourself from that person. So. You really have to uh, have to be sure that it's it's a good fit because uh, the pain you'll go through if it's not, especially if the business becomes a sort of an ongoing operation that you don't want to step away from, is just uh, really really painful.
0: How did you know when the working relationship was shifting to something that deserved to be an equal partnership or some sort of partnership? Was there a moment, or was it a feeling, or a certain stage of the business?
1: I think that. Uh, what brought it around was I had been working with Jason for a long time on just consulting with 37Signals being a web design company. And then by the time we shifted into products, that sort of felt like a it was a new phase, a second phase of the company. Uh, in many ways, it was, it was a new company. We had actually discussed it as a new company that we were going to create Basecamp LLC and we were going to be equal partners in that um but it just turned out to make more sense to to keep the existing company structure and uh me becoming a part of that
0: all right um let's move on tyler asked could you talk about the success or failure of our affiliate program and why we're not accepting new affiliates
2: well i think actually the affiliate program last we looked has been you would consider a success the the main reason why we're not adding more affiliates right now is because the way we built it um was it was a very manual process so in order to pay people we actually had to manually go into paypal and and do this and it doesn't sound like a big deal but we don't have a lot of slack here at the company everyone's busy with things that they're working on so you know every month just to, to pay out 30 40 50 people was just more work than it than it made sense for us at the time and so um, as the affiliate program was growing, it became more and more labor intensive. Certainly, we could have an intern do it. We don't have interns. you know. Certainly, we could have someone else do it. We didn't have anyone else to do it. So it's just a matter of, let's just kind of let this, we can control it, we can deal with it right now. And until we actually automate it, which is another thing we could do, we could spend time automating it. But again, we're busy with other things. So it's one of the things that, that we run up against a lot in, in the business, which is there's a variety of things we want to do, a lot of things we want to do, uh, limited resources. The options are, get more resources, um, which also has its own set of costs in terms of culture and time to hire people and that whole thing and assimilation and whatnot, or just don't do it anymore or do less of it. And so we decided with the affiliate program not to shut it completely, but just to not accept new people. So we knew that it would never grow beyond a a point that we could handle at this time. If the company changes or we have more people or we automate it in some way, we would probably want to consider reopening it again or simplifying it into a different variation on, on the theme.
0: And when deciding to shutter something like the affiliate program or, you know, uh, Sortfolio or something else, is there a number that you have? Is there a way of actually measuring it? Is it just a feeling like this just isn't worth it or
2: how do you make that decision? Uh, It depends on what it is. So, for example, with the affiliate program, it became not worth it pretty quickly because it was uh, busy work and I was doing it and I don't like busy work. So. It was it was easy just to say, let's not worry about this right now. Um, now we have some, someone else at the company who does the affiliate payments, so it's a little bit easier, and, and we could probably open it up again. But I actually think that um, if we were to open it up again, we'd want to redo it and, and simplify it so it's just easier for more people to get the word out than the way we have it set up right now. Um, sometimes it's a number. Sometimes it's just this isn't working. Sometimes it's just a matter of hassle. Sometimes it's a matter of opportunity cost. It's, it depends on what it is. There's no real... I mean, technically, I guess there is a science to it, but we're not scientific about it. We're, it's more of an art for us. Gotcha.
0: All right, next up, uh hope I'm pronouncing this right, Jaigar Patel asks, what is your take on methodologies like Agile or Waterfall? Do you follow them, or do you pick a feature, code it, test it, and ship it?
1: Well, I mean, whether you sort of say you follow something or not, uh, you will fall into to one or, or the other camp. Um, I think we strive to be... Uh, in the camp of sort of the agile iteration style of doing things just picking off small iterations that can be done in in a couple of weeks and no more Um, wrap it up in in all aspects and, and get it ready to ship but it's actually incredibly hard like we have this dilemma all the time where we set up with the best intentions that we want this to be a short iteration and then it's very easy to get into, fall into the trap of just adding more and more stuff to this iteration. Oh, wouldn't it be great if it also did this, that and the other thing. And before you know it, you have something that actually does resemble a waterfall approach where you have, let's say, five things that aren't directly related to each other in such a way that thing number three can't be done without thing number two, but you choose to make them related and then you're working on five things and none of those individual five things can be shipped in isolation because you've chosen to intermingle them and now you're looking at a project that runs much longer than just the one or two weeks you originally had in mind and nothing can ship before the end that feels very much like waterfall so i think waterfall sort of has a tendency to be propped up as this mythical approach of the past that no sane person would follow anymore when the truth is that plenty of so-called agile shops fall into the same trap that we fall in all the time, which is to bundle too much shit together in such a way that it can't be shipped as independent pieces and uh, the result being long, annoying uh, development processes where um, it doesn't take one or two weeks to ship something. It, It takes a month or more. Uh, what have you. So, the answer is neither one or the other. It's, it's sort of a constant struggle between the two. And there's not a hard delineation either between what is waterfall and what is agile. Um, they've sort of become these, in some ways, cartoon incarnations of themselves. And, and the truth is, it's a lot more gray.
0: All right. Uh, Steve Castaneda asked, do you ever find yourself struggling to take action? If so, what sort of advice could you give that has helped you in the past to move beyond a lack of motivation?
2: Uh, sure, I, I actually think that motivation comes in waves. Um, you know, you're you can have a really good couple weeks, and then you could be a little bit slow the next week or so. I mean, that kind of that's how it works for me. I sort of so I shouldn't I shouldn't generalize and say that's how it always is, but that's how it is for me and. Um, if I find myself not being motivated by something, I just try and look for something else to do instead of fight through it. I find that if I try and fight through it, I just it doesn't work. or I rush through it, you know, or I, I don't I don't find the interest again. The interest has to come naturally to me. So if I'm if I'm working on something and I can't quite make it work, I'll just switch to something else and do that for a while, and maybe I'll never get back to the other thing. or maybe if I do get back to the other thing, it'll be natural because I'll be motivated to do it again.
1: I completely agree. It's the same way. I, I have a very hard to impossible time forcing myself to do things that that I don't want to do. It only works in in very short bursts. So I think when you're feeling that lack of motivation, there's I've found with myself there's always a cause. There's always some reason why you don't want to do this. Either you sort of instinctually know that whatever you're working on is is just truly not worth it. That all this effort you're about to put into it is not going to, to pay off. So it feels like a, a waste of time, even if you won't admit that to yourself. Um, or the fact is just that uh, maybe you're not good at this, this is uh, uh, not your force, or that more likely that there's something you're more interested in. There's. Um, I find it hard to have like a, a wide array of things that I'm interested in at the same time. I usually pick one thing that I get... Really interested in solving, and then any other task that doesn 't fall under that banner has a hard time uh, capturing my imagination and, and getting done i I just put that on the back burner until uh, until whatever i 'm naturally interested in uh, sort of runs out or gets completed because I think the the key is when you have a natural inst or a natural interest in something, your productivity levels are through the roof when you are naturally Inspired to work on something uh, The amount of work you get done Is is incredible um, So I find that uh, even though Whatever I'm naturally interested in Might not from an objective point of view Be the most important thing To work on at that one time It is the most important thing to work on Because of the Productivity gains you get out of just being Super fired up about something um, So uh, I I find that you have to get that out of your system, and if you are super fired up about it, you will get it out of your system fast because you will do it really quickly.
0: Well, it also sounds like it's wasteful if you don't work on something when you're inspired on it. You're you're kind of wasting that. It is.
1: It is. I mean, your efficiency is so much lower. You're not going to be running at a at a hundred percent efficiency just because. You don't really want to do it. So you will find many more moments in the day to let yourself be distracted by email or reading on the web or or something else. That's usually the key smell that I detect when I'm working on something I don't really want to be working on. I check email much more frequently. I engage in chats much more frequently about things that aren't related to the things I should be working on. And on the flip side, when I'm working on something I'm really fired up about, I couldn't care less about uh, uh, new posts on Twitter or whatever. I will work on getting whatever I'm working on done right now.
0: Okay, let's talk about Rails. Uh, Shane Pinnell has a couple questions. For David, uh, do you ever intend on retiring from Rails development or if you have an exit plan? Um, And for Jason, how important is Rails to the operation of 37signals? Do you think... 37signals would have the same success using another language or framework.
1: So I'll I'll answer that first. The only time I'm going to be retiring from working on Rails is if I stop working on web applications. It doesn't really otherwise it doesn't make sense to me. I am always going to be interested in the tools that I work with and, uh, and use to build something. So if I'm involved in an endeavor that's building web applications, I will have an opinion about how those web applications should be built. And I'm currently expressing those opinions in, in Rails. So I see no, no end to that since I have uh, no intention of stopping uh, the work on 37signals. Uh, on We're in this, as, as we often say, for, for the long haul. We're going to hopefully be in this for 10, 20, 30 years. So if that is the case, I will presumably still be working on on Rails or some other variation of a toolset that we will end up using. There's certainly no guarantee that the way we build applications 10 years from now is going to follow the same development paradigm that Rails embodies. So if there's a new paradigm or a new approach or something else that we do, then we will probably come up with another toolset and I will have opinions about how that toolset should be designed and... Uh, most likely, be involved with um, with developing that.
2: As far as whether or not Rails is important to thirty seven signals, it certainly is. I mean, of course, you can build any software with pretty much anything. Like we could build our products with another language or framework. It, it's, it's totally possible. Um, but it's about it's a matter of how do you want to build these things. Who do you want to attract? Uh, I think we have you know the best people in the world because people like working with rails and like the environment that we've created here and we couldn't have necessarily done that what if we worked in a different language or a different framework or whatever so it's all it, you know it's not about the the language in terms of what the products can do it's about the language and the framework and the environment in terms of how you how much you enjoy working on the products and who you can attract and the other people who appreciate that aesthetic or that environment and then you attract those kind of people and those are pleasant people to work with and work for so um, I think that's why it's important to the company. All right. Uh, next
0: up, a, another David asks, uh, Jason, do you consider being on the board of Groupon a return to consulting work? And then a question for both of you: Would Thirty Seven Signals ever consider providing consultation for startups with a lot of cash but no clue what they're doing?
2: Uh, the Groupon thing is not consulting. I, I um, I'm not on the board of directors anymore. I'm on. I'm an, an advisor now, which is a different position but before when I was on the board it was a a meeting every every uh quarter um you know for a couple hours uh and maybe a bit of preparation the night before and maybe a phone call here and there so it's it wasn't it's not consulting at all and uh now it's even less so I just give my feedback on design and language and product ideas and whatever occasionally if 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 asked so it's it's not consulting it's just you know being a Basically kind of being a friend as I would be a friend to somebody else. If they had a business and they had a question for me, I would be happy to answer it and give my feedback. So it's very similar to that. Um, as far as giving advice to to startups with a lot of cash, was it a lot of cash but no clue? Yeah, I, I don't like that, that arrangement. I'd prefer a lot of clue and little cash. To me, that's a lot more interesting. If I'm going to help somebody, I'm more interested in helping someone there than, than I would be helping someone who has a lot of money but doesn't have any idea what to do with it
1: also they're already off to the wrong start so if they don't have clue and got a lot of cash they're they're double worse off they're much less likely to develop a clue if they have a lot of cash when you have a lot of cash you can uh... dilute yourself for a very long time and still pay the bills there's nothing that will bring realism into your world as quickly as uh, realizing that you're out of cash that uh, that is just a smack of uh real life that uh will uh instill sense in almost anybody
0: okay uh mark nevin asks how do you prepare for public speaking
1: um
2: I, it depends I, I, pre- I i've changed the way i prepare over the years so i used to be um i used to practice for hours uh, before i would talk the night before i would pace around and, and practice and practice and practice uh, and I feel like that was a good thing for me at the time because I wasn't great at it and I got better at it because of that. But now, I, I first of all, I don't really do any public speaking anymore. I'm taking the year off and I might take off more than more than just this year. But as of you know, late 2010 when I kind of gave my last talk, um, I, I pretty much like to go in unprepared now. I feel like I know my material because uh, I know what I'm talking about. I've been talking about it for a while and I, and I live and breathe this stuff. So I, I found that... The less I prepare, the more enjoyable it is for me because I can go on stage and sort of talk from the heart rather than try and remember back what I thought I was going to say and what I already decided I was going to say. So it's been a shift in my public speaking career, if you want to call it that, from uh, very detailed, meticulous preparation to winging it. And uh, I find it more enjoyable now just to wing it.
1: I completely agree. I I can pretty much only do the Wing It style because I get uh, intensely bored if I know exactly what I'm going to say. Uh, I can have some talking points that I'm interested in getting across but the actual manner of presenting the arguments have to pretty much pop into my head at the time of giving them because otherwise I will just be bored and there's nothing more unengaging, to me at least, than a speaker who is bored with his own material. So. I like to be just surprised by the arguments that will pop into my head as uh, as I'm giving them. Which sounds like sort of a wrong way to do it. Because I remember seeing or hearing presentations from people who would brag about how little they prepared. And I always found that kind of offensive. If not annoying. Oh, I, I only put this together last night. Well, I mean, what do I care? Like, just... Give me something good. So if you are going to do the just wing it style, uh, at least don't fucking brag about it on stage.
2: Yeah, I agree. Um, That's the thing that really bugs me about people. Like I did this on the plane over here or whatever. You don't need to say that. Um, and the truth is, is that even if you're winging it, if you've been doing it for 10 years, you're not winging it because you've got 10 years of practice behind you. So it's it's not... It's not winging, it, but, but being totally unprepared and not having an idea of what you want to talk about and then telling people that to me is, is, is insulting because people paid good money to be at these conferences. You might have been able to go for free because you're speaking, but people traveled and paid a big money and took time off work to be there. Uh, I think you, you, know, you, you owe it to them not to tell them that you don't really care about what you're about to talk about. That doesn't make sense to me.
0: And You guys have both had talks that have gone viral and really spread far and wide. I'm wondering, did you know... Uh, While you were giving them that they were going to be those kind of talks that really like were outstanding and or that You know other people responded to was it something that just happened after the fact? Or is it something you knew even when you had the idea you're like, oh, this is going to be big When when does something like that occur to you like oh that was like a hit speech?
1: You have to test your material on a live audience Uh, You might have all these sort of ideas. Oh, this is such a brilliant point and then you deliver the point and there's no response so I think it's it's sometimes hard to know what kinds of points that are going to be big hits until you get them in front of a live audience and you see the reaction. But that's also the point where you know it. So I think the, the most popular talk I've been, I've given was the, um, how do you make money online at startup school in, in 08? And I could just sense the atmosphere of the room being that this is really resonating and you have a pretty good take then that that's going to be uh, something that works. And I also think that uh, I, in many ways I'm always my own hardest critic for these things I rarely think that the uh, whatever I'm delivering is, could have been or I think it could have been delivered better so uh, the, the few times where you get that sensation from the crowd that this is really hitting home is, is much more reassuring than whoever will come up to you afterwards and saying, oh, that was a great talk. Because people are people and they're trying to be nice. And they will always tell you it was a great talk if they come up to, to speak with you you afterwards. You really have to take that temperature of the room to, to get a sense of was this good or not. And sometimes, like, magic moments happen where the
2: right stars align. Like, for example, the TEDx talk I gave uh, last year... Um, was I knew this was going to be a big deal because it was a TEDx thing and TEDx or TED stuff gets spread a lot and you get to reach a whole new audience and so I um, when I was asked to tell the 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 crew whatever the TEDx crew what I was going to speak about I kind of didn't really say I sort of kept it close to my chest and didn't give them slides up front and I decided not to use slides at all Um, and I wanted it to be kind of a spontaneous thing Um, and I didn't want any meddling I didn't want Anyone telling you what I should and shouldn't say, because the the TEDx uh, deal is actually a fairly controlled environment, and uh, and they usually give you very good advice. But I just wanted to kind of do this myself because I thought this could be a big opportunity. So, and since I knew it was going to go out to a wide audience, I wanted to talk about something that was um, widely would be wide, well and widely received, which is why work doesn't happen at work. Instead of talking about something specific to web design or to design or programming or you know so- software development or something, which would have a narrow audience. I knew this would be a broad audience, so I picked a broad topic. So sometimes you run into situations like that where you know something could be big. Um, But that's the only one in in my sort of speaking life that I I knew could have a good shot to really make it big. And otherwise, though, it's just been trying to deliver something great every time.
0: And you guys usually use uh, slides now when you talk?
2: I don't use slides at all anymore Uh, I much actually prefer Q&A and although I sort of find that a bit pretentious so I kind of struggle with that that I should walk up and go ask me questions that doesn't sit right with me but I, I, I much prefer them because and I think the audience does because at the end of the day you can if you're spending an hour with somebody I might as well make it worth their while not just worth my while and I think a lot of speeches are worth the speaker's while but the audience doesn't get a lot from it so when you can Encourage people to ask you questions and take the discussion in the direction that the audience wants it to go. I find it to be most valuable.
1: I I enjoy slides. To me, they anchor the general points that I want to make. It's not uh, slides in the sense of, oh, here's a headline and then there's five bullet points and they have two sub bullets. And I mean, that's obviously bullshit. Um, Slides are either three words or they're a picture. Or if I'm... bring something that's about programming their code Uh, I do find that if you're talking about something specific to your craft you should be as specific as possible I definitely struggle with this all the time that it's very easy to go all conceptual on people and be very high-flying when uh, you're at a programming conference there's nothing that gets people to look up from their laptop like showing a piece of code that should tell you something people want to see code it makes the concept very immediate and um, practical and just clear for somebody to uh, internalize. And I think the same thing is true for for design. Whenever I see Ryan or Jason talk about design and they throw up a concrete screenshot or a sketch or something, that's when people really look up and pay attention. So I strive in my own slides to be as specific as and as concrete as possible and then you can weave in all the conceptual uh, philosophy around that, just uh, winging it and and telling the story around it. But at least the slides uh, should be very concrete.
0: Okay. Uh, Chris asks, I'm curious about what personal finance looks like when making the amount of money that you guys do. Do you too play the stock market or invest otherwise, and are there any books or blogs on the subject that you recommend?
2: Well, that's, that's a personal question. I, I don't, <laughs> um, uh, I, I've always sort of played the stock market. Uh, I've always loved the stock market ever since I've been, since I knew what it was, you know, my, my dad is a trader. Uh, so I've always been into it and I've always enjoyed dabbling in it. Um, I, I don't put my life at risk in it. Uh, and I, and I think, I think it's, it's probably not a good place to put your money in general. I, I don't trust it very much anymore. Um, but it's fun to, to mess with that here and there, but I, I, uh, I kind of leave that job to professional or professionals to, to take care of stuff. And for me, it's mostly about uh, maintaining whatever money I've been able to to accumulate. It's not so much about trying to grow it. Uh, you know, I want to grow it a little bit, but it's I'm not taking risks with it. I don't really think there's any reason to do that. Um, so for me, it's maintenance and just uh, preservation. And that's kind of my attitude towards it. I have not invested in any private companies or anything like that i haven't done any angel investing or anything like that i there's some companies that i would invest in like if i was into that and and had an opportunity to do so but i'm not really into it and i don't have an opportunity so i haven't done anything
1: i think that's a very similar style like uh it's funny this there's often this conception that entrepreneurs are very uh risk happy um I know for a fact that I'm not very risk happy at all. Uh, I, I'm the embodiment of that experiment where uh, p- people are much more hesitant to, to lose $50 than they are to gain $50. Uh, I really hate losing stuff. So I have an incredibly conservative setup that's, uh, as Jason was saying, mostly just about preservation. And then uh, you can sort of also pick the battles where you're going to take your risk. Um, Obviously, for for a long time, Jason and I both took uh, the bulk of the risk just having pretty much everything tied up to or into a company. Um, So if you're taking a significant amount of risk in one aspect of your life, maybe uh, you don't also need to take it in all the other aspects of your life. Um, But I also think it it is sort of an interesting uh, thing. How do you do do this? Uh, Very few people, very, very few people are good enough to beat the market. So if you're going to invest something of, of any kind, uh, usually you'll do better just having as uh, low fee as possible an ETF or index fund that just tracks the general market. Um, like the world is full of people who, who tell you that they can beat the market and uh, the world is also full of statistics telling you that they don't.
0: Okay. Let's see. Uh, Adam asks, what is your philosophy when it comes to giving feedback to your employees? How do you deliver criticism and how do you deliver praise?
2: Um, I think uh, this is still an area where we need to improve. Um, one of the things we started doing last year was were these things called one-on-ones, which may be familiar to a lot of other people who run businesses. Um, they're basically an opportunity to you sit down with somebody one-on-one for 20, 30 minutes and just talk about whatever's going on. And we, we try and do these... We we want to do them every few weeks. It's probably more like every six to eight weeks now. It's not as often as maybe we should, but just sort of getting a good feel for what's going on, what concerns somebody has, what are some things we can do to improve. Um, I have one scheduled today in the afternoon, which I'm looking forward to. So it's 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 an informal just hey what's up anything going on? Because the thing we realize is that you know we don't even though we're sort of talking to each other all day long uh, in campfire or or in other ways. Um, you don't really have those moments one-on-one where you can sit down with someone and just let, like, let them sort of unload, and, and it's usually not like that, but um, just say, hey, let's just chat about how things are going. And and what happens is that these things get pent up, and um, and they come out all at once if you only do it every six months, and then it's just not very good, or someone's unhappy for six months before they get a chance to talk to you again. So we're trying to, to be a bit more open about speaking to people more often, so uh, these these sort of events if there are any sort of negative situations are are smaller and they can be dealt with in the near term instead of in the far term and i, I think um was it, was it a dale carnegie thing or something
0: like that about uh criticizing in private and and praising in public i, I remember that was an idea In the early early days of 37 Signals, which I think has, uh, you guys have kind of stuck with where it's, you know, if someone's doing a good job, make sure to sort of lavish praise on them and, you know, at least internally. So everyone in the company kind of sees it as, as a a feel good thing for everyone. And then, you know, if you are going to criticize someone, you know, sort of pull them aside and have it be a private thing.
2: I don't think we're great at, uh, at critique yet though. Like there's actually a really good formal process for critique and I'm not sure we're anywhere close to being really great at that. Um, we have our own sort of ways of doing it, but it might be it might be good for us to get better at that, so people can have really specific points of feedback um, that that are helpful. Um, we've, we 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 try to get better, and we have gotten better at it. One of the things we, we had a problem with at one point was um, was uh, giving design feedback. It, it came off as, as a bit harsh and, and quick up upfront, um, without saying, "Are you even ready for feedback?" So sometimes, like we encourage all the designers to share stuff as often as they can whatever they're working on just share it share it share it the problem though is if they know they're going to share it and they're going to get a bunch of feedback on it immediately they hesitate to share it cuz they're not ready for that feedback so we've been sort of asking people here and there are you you know thanks for sharing this do you want my feedback now or later or not at all you just want to kind of put this in for posterity so that's i think been a good uh, improvement with the way we we give design critique okay matt is a
0: recent graduate with a degree in software engineering uh, he wants to work at a small company, but he's having a hard time because most of the job requests are for people with years more experience. Um, he thinks he can do the work, but it's hard to get past the you're too young thing. Do you have any advice for him?
1: I'd say that uh, most people say that they want people with this or that much experience, and all they're doing is using it as a proxy because that's the only way that they feel they can evaluate the work. So you can route around that by giving them something much more concrete to evaluate the work on for programmers it's never been easier the world of open source software is such a easy way to get into showing off your work and it makes you feel good in the process you get to improve the comments and and you'll probably find a lot of uh contacts to uh uh, to work with it's sort of like it's uh its own ivy league system uh one of the big advantages if you go to Harvard or Stanford or whatever and you want to get into investment banking is that you'll meet a lot of people that will make it easier for you to get into investment banking. Now if you want to be a great software developer, you can do all that without paying $60,000 a year in tuition just by putting in some sweat equity in improving the commons in the open source world. For example, when we look to to pick people up, I much prefer, if I don't even have to post a job wanted at anywhere, if I can just identify a contributor to the open source world and say, I'd really like to talk to that person. Um, And you'll just meet so many people. Today, open source development is not just um, sort of, I don't know, the cartoon image of the 80s, just hippies sitting somewhere and uh, writing free love code for... uh, the good of humanity most people are actually employed somewhere so if you get to collaborate with somebody on a piece of open source software chances are that they're working at some company and right now at least chances are that that company is hiring Um, the software development market is is red hot right now in a in a bunch of niches Um, i'm constantly 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 being asked do you know any rails programmers Um, We're even having, sort of I don't know if I'd call it a hard time, but uh, it takes a long time for us even to to find the right people where perhaps like five years ago, we had much more to pick of the litter where we could choose anybody because there's not that many employers offering these opportunities. So uh, if you're a programmer today and you're not employed, you're not looking or doing the right things. And doing the right things is A, get involved in open source development, B, learn a uh, development environment that's that's hot right now, which is, Rails is one of them. There are certainly others in this whole sort of space that, that has those same attributes and it's not that hard to get into it. So um, yeah, I guess that's the summary of it. Okay. Uh,
0: Gigi Wicks asks, when was the first time you guys realized you wanted to do your own thing as far as building your own business?
2: Uh, I, I realized this. When I was growing up, um, I kind of had my own little side businesses. When I was 14, 15, doing some stuff here and there. And I, I after I graduated college, I went to work for someone for a few months and realized pretty quickly that I wasn't really built that way. So I, I uh, went moved back to Chicago, and uh, and started my own thing then. So I've kind of known this my whole life. I've done, I've worked for lots of people. I've done all sorts of different jobs, but as far as as far as career goes, I sort of realized pretty early on that uh, doing my own thing was for me.
1: Uh, same thing here. I've Since I was uh, the same, like 14, 15, I've, I've always been running side businesses, starting projects, uh, running groups of, of various kinds. So it's always felt very natural to um, sort of call your own shots and, and run your own thing. So, but. I think it's also it's incredibly important. I've met a bunch of people who've had that similar experience and then they've gone straight into just doing that. And they're usually horrible managers and leaders of people. If you have not been in somebody's shoes, um, you just do not know what it's like. If you've never been an employee at a crappy company, you do not know what the things to avoid are. It's very easily easy to delude yourself into, think that that you can empathize with somebody just by imagining it. I don't believe that. You have to have walked in somebody else's shoes to to really understand where they're coming from. So if you want to run a software company, for example, as this is the case here, you should have worked at a fair number of software companies before and known from an employee's perspective uh, what's good and what's shit.
0: And that wraps it up for this round of Q&A. Thanks for the questions. There were a lot more in the thread, so hopefully we'll get to those soon. Thanks again for listening. Again, you can go to 37signals.com slash podcast for previous episodes and transcripts. Thanks. Bye.